Welcome to episode 148, Complexities of OCD and Creating Treatment That Works, ERP and Beyond, featuring Kimberly Quinlan, licensed marriage and family therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am excited to welcome back Kimberly Quinlan. Uh, Kim is a private practice uh, practitioner, and she specializes in OCD and body-focused repetitive behaviors. And she did a wonderful episode for us previously about relationship OCD versus uh, more typical relationship doubts. I encourage you to take a listen to that um, from Kim's earlier podcast episode. But thank you again for joining us, Kim. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me back. Um, So please, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to have this specialization in uh, anxiety, OCD, and body-focused repetitive behaviors? Yeah, sure. So I um, am a marriage and family therapist. I'm actually Australian, but I moved to America when I was 20. Um, I wanted to specialize in anxiety. And one of the places I could get an internship was with an OCD center. Um, I had absolutely no idea what OCD was. I had never met anyone with OCD, but immediately fell in love with treating OCD and BFRBs. BFRB is a body-focused repetitive behavior such as hair pulling and skin picking. And so since then, it's sort of become my passion, you know, to help not only treat it, but educate people mostly because Um, we are really grossly, we misunderstand OCD. I think we have a lot of societal um, sort of expectations about what OCD looks like. And I'd love to just share a little more deeper about what OCD looks like in the room. Wonderful. Thank you, Kim. Um, So why don't we start by you just defining what is obsessive compulsive disorder and then My second question is, how has that changed over time from when we first included OCD in the DSM and it was something that became quote unquote diagnosable? Um, How has our understanding shifted over the years and how we understand it, how it presents and how we treat it? Sure. Yeah. So OCD involves first an obsession. So it's important to understand that an obsession isn't like um, an obsession where you love sweaters, like, or I just love lining up Oreo cookies in cookie jars. An obsession when it comes to an OCD diagnosis is an unwanted, intrusive, repetitive thought, but it can also be in the form of a feeling, a sensation, an image or an urge. Um, And that's where we've come so far, right? Because we used to think of an obsession of, of course, the more Hollywood understood OCD is contamination, crack jumping, reordering things. But now we understand an obsession as something that can be very excruciating, very humiliating, very stigmatized. It must also involve a compulsion which is a physical behavior. Again, we know the crack jumping and the hand washing and those kinds of moving, rearranging kind of compulsions. But a really misunderstood presentation of compulsions is that they can be mental as well. A lot of mental rumination is a compulsion. And the compulsion is done to try and reduce or remove uncertainty, doubt, or anxiety. And in some cases, disgust, right? Because some people's obsession could be around simply disgust. It doesn't have any anxiety at all. What, so like I said before, is we, ha- we have sort of a lot of, I'll sort of tell you a story is a majority of clients have, who come to us in our treatment center have said either a clinician or a doctor at some point in their recovery has said, you don't have OCD, you don't wash your hands or you don't have OCD, I don't see you locking the doors or checking the right. stove. And and for them, that becomes really problematic because it interferes with their ability to access treatment because they haven't got the correct diagnosis. So now, luckily, we have so much more research and so many more clinicians trained who can see that obsessions can be and we can talk about different subtypes, can be an attack any part of one's life. 
usually OCD attacks the things you value the most. Um, so it could be safety, responsibility, religion, your relationships, your um, feeling of being in control and so forth. As you're talking about OCD and this idea of obsessions and then compulsions, can you take a little jaunt over for a minute for our listeners about how OCD relates to BFRBs, to body focused mm -hmm. repetitive behaviors, just to quickly name that and bring that into this conversation, then we'll jump back over into OCD. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So um, similar to OCD, where there's an obsession and a compulsion, people who have BFRB, so hair pulling, skin picking, nail biting, cheek biting, these are the most common presentations. They play out in that same way. So there's an obsession, which is in the form of an urge. And in order to take that urge and that discomfort away, they do some kind of repetitive behavior as a compulsion to reduce or remove that. And so it has that same obsessive and compulsive cycle. Um, the treatment is slightly different for, habit, for um, BFRBs, um, but we conceptualize them very similar um, in the way, in fact, that they play out. And we find that statistically people who have a BFRB often will have some form of OCD in their life or their family's life. It's very genetic. Um, and so they often will go together as with other symptoms like Tourette's and tics. Um, these often will fall under the, under similar categories and behaviors. Thank you. Thank you for going over there and we'll come back to OCD. So at what point knowing that everybody has the possibility of thinking very deeply about something or having intrusive thoughts and then feeling like they must do something to go make sure they close the garage door. At what point from your lens through your perspective, does that functional anxiety and obsession or even compulsion go into something diagnosable with this asterisk here, noting that we are operating in a medical model based system where we diagnose and so we pathologize, you know, there's this imaginary line where something goes from typical to atypical. But so in your eyes, where is that line of typical to atypical? Yeah. So the, the, the thing to remember is everyone has intrusive thoughts, right? Everyone, whether you have OCD, everyone has had them. But what happens in the brain of someone with OCD is people will often say something to the likes of, I feel like my brain is stuck, right? I feel like my brain is stuck on that thought or I feel like my brain is broken, like it's a, a broken record and it's just stuck on one thing and you can't seem to go back to your daily functioning. It seems to be stuck on that one topic. In addition to that, we understand scientifically that if we do a MRI or, or a CT scan of the brain is the part of the brain that inhibits behaviors is is the connection there is inhibited so then in addition for the person with the diagnosis is they can't stop the compulsion either they can't stop the action that they're getting caught in so even though they've just checked the the stove they may go back and check and again and again and they get stuck on that behavior now we understand that we all do this some to tiny degrees, but when it we can becomes interfering with your daily life, uh, when it's starting to impact your functioning, it's taking up more than two hours of your day, well, then we would absolutely give them a diagnosis. Can you speak to the demographics around OCD? Like what is, who is the average person who presents with OCD? How long are they experiencing symptoms? Are, is it generally recognized by family members or by uh, primary care doctors? Like who, who is the typical OCD patient? Right. Um, OCD does not discriminate. So it will find its way into different cultures, different ages, it tends to show up more in preteens. Um, that's where it's highly diagnosed, but we don't really understand if that's because they're the ones who are being having it being detected. By the time you're an adult, there's so much shame around OCD. We also have to take into consideration of who's not reporting their symptoms. Um, but but technically, from what we understand, the general onset is pr 
preteen to early adulthood. Unfortunately, um, at this point in time, it takes between 7 and 14 years for the average OCD sufferer to get the correct diagnosis. Um, it That is reduced since I, you know, I think that we have so much more information and, re- and, and resources um, since that study was released, but that is the average that we're looking at right now in the OCD community. Um, does not discriminate on gender, um, and so we see, uh, you know, a pretty even distribution. That number of seven to fourteen years is stark. Um, what does the picture look like then for those folks who are before the average of seven to 14 years? What are they being told by the medical or mental health community about what's going on? Well, again, I think that they're being told that you don't have OCD because you don't have overt um, compulsions. Um, and that because it's important to understand that compulsions, this is really important for clinicians to understand is compulsions aren't just physical. They involve reassurance seeking. They involve confessions. They involve avoidance. Avoidance is a very, very common unseen compulsion. And the most common is mental rumination, mentally trying to solve, 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 round and round and round. How can I take away this uncertainty? And so a lot of people um, are going to their medical professional, their GP, and explaining that they're stuck and not being diagnosed. So unfortunately, what often happens, and this is where my mission here is today, is as clinicians, when they've been referred to us, we can then catch it. We can then catch that diagnosis because unfortunately, the even the the um, the therapy field and us as clinicians, we have so much work to do because if a client comes in and they're having a lot of anxiety and we in session are going over and over that uncertainty and we as clinicians are trying to reassure them and say, you know, it's very unlikely that that would happen. We are then doing compulsions in therapy mm-hmm. and keeping the, the whole, whole diagnosis alive. Um, and so that's as clinicians, that's where we can do better in terms of catching it, diagnosing it, and getting them to the right treatment as soon as possible so that we're not playing out the OC cycle in session. Got it. OCD can occur with medical diagnoses. So in a past episode, I'd interviewed Dr. Roseanne Kapana-Hodge, and we had talked about PANS, PANDAS, and autoimmune encephalitis. And part of that is a common, um, generally rapid onset of OCD. Is the perspective about OCD different, whether it comes from a known medical cause, um, or is the treatment essentially the same regardless of whether it's secondary to some other kind of brain infection, for example, or it, it is coming from, from we'll say, an unknown cause from genetics or this person, you know, is type A, quote unquote, whatever it is. Yeah. So just like any any psychological problem that a client presents with, we always want to assess for medical first, right? We want to check their safety and health first. And so if there is, like you're saying, PANS or PANDAS being present, we would 100% want them to be treated for that because the the treatment we would use typically for OCD, we it would only go so far until Mm -hmm. they had that treatment. But it's really important for people to then not feel like they have to go on a medical, you know, um, treasure hunt first to and to understand that pans typically shows up shows up with a very sudden onset um and so if your if your ocd didn't show up in that sudden onset you would go and just use exposure and response prevention which is the gold standard treatment so for either to answer your question both would need to involve exposure and response prevention but when we're looking at a medical issue being the the um, trigger, we would need to make sure we've got that treated. Thank you. 
so diving further into OCD and and you've already addressed kind of this idea that there are misconceptions in medical and behavioral health about the way OCD is going to present so that it's not necessarily um, Jack Nicholson's character from as good as it gets, that it's not the lock checking, the hand washing, the crack avoiding. Can you kind of give some examples or some stories, if you will, of what tells you clinically as someone who's really focused on this, an expert in this, in the room where you hear this this statement and you go, I need to inquire more, tell me more about that, and your brain starts to light up with maybe we're looking at OCD? Yeah, yeah. So such a great question. Um, really simply, again, we're looking for the presentation of an obsession that's repetitive and unwanted and cause significant distress. So a very common example, and this is one that alarms a lot of clinicians, is one of the most common obsessions we see in our practice is, un- is harm obsessions, the fear that you would harm somebody, right? So they may present in session saying very reluctantly because they're afraid of being reported I'm having these thoughts that I may or may not harm my child, my boyfriend, my grandma, myself, right? Could be even self-harm obsessions. And the first question as clinicians we ask is, do you do you have a plan? Do you right. want to do these things? And their usual response is, absolutely not. I am terrified of that. You know, it goes 100% against my values. Um, It's just that I can't stop thinking about it and I can't stop being caught in the uncertainty. So the thing to remember is OCD is the uncertain disorder. It's always wrapped in uncertainty and the compulsion is always wrapped in certainty. How can I get certainty on this problem? So harm obsessions is a really common one. Um, Unfortunately, I've had so many stories of people who have been reported for these thoughts and feelings only once they've been assessed to find that they have absolutely no wish for this to happen. It, you know, again, my clients with OCD are usually the sweetest, kindest, wouldn't harm a fly kind of people. Um, and so it's so ego dystonic. Um, and so that's a common representation. Another example would be that could also be around sexual obsessions, the fear that you may harm someone sexually. And that's where it gets tricky because people don't want to report this to us, right? Mm. They don't want to say, I'm having thoughts about my baby, right? I'm having thoughts that I'll do something to my baby or my niece. Um, But again, that's the presentation, a repetitive, intrusive, unwanted, distressing thought, feeling, sensation, or urge. Um, There are so many categories in which this could go into involving religion. Have I or have I not sinned? It could be um, around relationships. Have I or have I cheated? Have I, um, do I love my partner or not? We've talked about relationship obsessions in the past. Um, It could also be around previous events, like trying to remember them correctly, but you can't kind of get certainty on that. Um, Again, it could be on, um, many, many topics, pretty much any topic, and but it presents the same. Everything you just said is kind of taking me a moment to digest because you're pointing to how easy it would be for this to be missed or misdiagnosed and the potential harm that could be done. Um, there's just this rabbit hole that I'm imagining that could be really... Um, dangerous for clinicians and clients alike to go into a place of, okay, well then, um, I'm, then I believe you're homicidal or then I believe you're gay. Then I believe whatever it is, um, that may not actually be at all what's going on in terms of OCD. You'd mentioned the co-occurrence along things like BFRBs. How about how it fits in with other conditions? So addiction, um, anxiety, depression, is OCD, anxiety on steroids, if you will. Like, Tell me kind of the, the presentation or is OCD usually something that when we catch it, if you will, it, it seems more isolated or does it often co-occur? It, 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 so basically, um, the co-occurrence is very high. So 
of course, if you have an obsession that you're too afraid or too ashamed to share, um, chances of you using a substance to manage that is very, very high. Um, so that is very, very common. The co-occurrence between eating disorders and OCD is also very high. I myself had an eating disorder. And one of the reason I love treating OCD is it exactly explained what it felt like for me to have an eating disorder. I had an obsession. I was stuck in it. It was distressing. I didn't want it, but I could not get out of that cycle. So there's a very much an overlap there with eating disorders. Um, often eating the OCD will have a secondary depression, right? Because this is depressing stuff and this is hopeless. It feels incredibly hopeless and helpless to be in this situation. So yes, depression is often co-occurring. Um, of course, we've already talked about the BFRBs and again, very over reoccurring re for the folks who have BFRBs as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, but however, the treatment for OCD is very specific right? So we wouldn't use cognitive, you know, simple CBT on OCD. We wouldn't use, um, you know, cognitive, cognitive treatment for OCD. Um, the treatment for OCD has its very specific treatment for very specific reasons. That brings me to my next question. Um, Tell us about the treatments for OCD and why CBT or these other things would not be appropriate and then what is appropriate and kind of the gold standard in OCD treatment. Sure, sure. So um, what sort of a history of the treatment, right, is we first started treating OCD with cognitive therapy and we found that cognitive as much as you restructured thinking, it didn't last very long because the fear just came back and the uncertainty just came back. So they added the behavioral component. Um, so then we were adding behavioral change. We also found that that was helpful, but had its limitations. What we have found since then is to put an emphasis on behavioral therapy. Um, they coined it exposure and response prevention. So it's a form of CBT, right? It's not the same CBT you would use with uh, eating disorder or depression or generalized anxiety or social anxiety, but the emphasis is on the behavioral approach. And what you do is very paradoxical is you actually have the patient face their fear, their worst fear. And so we started that the history was we were doing exposure therapy, go and face your fear. If you're afraid of, of contamination, go and touch doorknobs and go and flush the toilet and do the things you're avoiding. But what, what we found was, is that the core missing piece is you can do exposures all day, but if you're then going and doing a bunch of compulsions to undo that, it's going to fall pretty flat. So exposure and response prevention is exposing someone to their fear directly, whether it's the actual physical thing or the thought, and then practicing response prevention, which is withholding compulsions. And instead of doing a compulsion, they would practice riding out the wave of discomfort um, and letting it pass with time instead of doing that compulsion. So effectively, riding that wave is developing increased distress tolerance for the unpleasant state that that would normally be addressed with a compulsion. Yeah, yeah. And through that, we have inhibitory learning, right? So we learn, we don't learn that bad things won't happen. We learn we can tolerate it. We learn that we can survive uncomfortable feelings. Um, we learn that the, the thought will come and go in its own timeline. What are the drawbacks of ERP? It's really hard. I tell my clients straight up at the beginning, we do a heavy emphasis on psychoeducation and we tell them straight up, you are not going to enjoy this. You, you will not enjoy therapy. You know, with other disorders, you know, I remember in my early treatment of an eating disorder, I used to long to go and see my therapist. Like it was the safe place. You sit on the couch and she understood and it was so great. Um, unfortunately, coming to therapy for OCD involves 
doing really, really hard things, staring your fear in the face. It takes a lot of motivation. It takes a lot of support. Um, it's, it's hard work, right? It's really, really hard work. And that, that is um, a roadblock to recovery for a lot of people. Um, it's also hard to access, which is kind of why I'm here, right, is you have to be pretty trained in it. Although while, you know, we've explained it and you could do it, it has its own little nuances in its, in its practice. Um, and the other big thing, which is a part of my mission, is it can be very, very expensive. Very, very few clinicians who treat OCD are in network. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in LA County, I think there is one um, in the whole of LA County. Um, so, and in many states until recently, there were no OCD specialists in some states like Idaho. Um, some of the middle states had zero access to care. Um, and so, you know, that's why I have written a book about it and have online courses for people with OCD as just a way for them to learn and understand it. Will you give a bit of a background of the birth of ERP? And like, so when did it come onto the scene? You said it, it's kind of an offshoot of CBT when when there was a recognition of the limitations of CBT and being able to really stick, if you will. Um, when did ERP come in to kind of fill that hole? How is it viewed clinically in the community? Because we are operating in a world of alphabet soup where, <laughs> you know, p- pick your letter from an alphabet and there are going to be a number of acronyms there associated with some kind of method. So tell me more about kind of the history of ERP and and how it came to find its place now as one of the gold standard treatments for OCD. Sure. Yeah, it was only developed in 1981, I believe. Um, and so there are a lot of people my age who were, you know, 15 and you know, had terrible treatment for many, many years because there wasn't a treatment. So it's a newer treatment in the grand scheme of psychology. Um, The good news is, is if you did a meta-analysis of the data for OCD, it would clearly direct you towards ERP. Um, Now, in terms of other, you know, um, there are other modalities that can be really helpful in terms of acceptance and commitment therapy is now scientifically shown to also be a great uh, supplement to ERP. Uh, We are now having some data around DBT being a very good supplement to ERP, as is mindfulness-based CBT. Um, So, And now self-compassion is becoming more scientifically proven as well. Now, we, we should really address the elephant in the room, which is that can be really hard for clinicians, particularly when their modality is very analytical. Um, and, and so I think the main sort of thing just to keep an eye out is any analysis of an obsession usually does become a compulsion. Um, and that would be the main, you know, we, we know based on experience and data that that is the main red flag when it comes to an OCD client. You had said that ERP is potentially a hard sell because it's different than standard, if you will, talk therapy. Can you describe what ERP looks like from assessment diagnosis into treatment and kind of the that give us some of that psychoeducation that you give to clients so that we can understand really what this looks like? Sure. Yeah. So um, the way I was trained and all my staff, we have a actual hard copy manual. Well, now we're teletherapy, so we email it, but we have a manual. And in the manual is those first two sessions of psychoeducation, explaining to the person with OCD that, you know, there is a cycle. We call it the OC cycle. You could Google it and it will come up for you. There is an OC cycle that they need to understand and recognize and understand that will help them catch when they're stuck in a cycle, right? Um, We do a lot of education around what exposure will look like, mostly giving disclaimers like we will never have you do anything you don't want to do. We would never have you do anything that goes against your values. I would never have a client do anything I myself wouldn't do. And so setting some parameters around what they can expect 
And then we move into the treatment, which is where they identify all of their obsessions, right? And we identify all of their compulsions. We do a pretty heavy assessment. I say to my patients, I don't mind if it's 17 pages long, right? There's no shame in that. But once we get the obsessions, we and we have a list of the compulsions we go to work to that's the the treatment is we go to work we practice facing their fears every session and we give heavy doses of homework um and we say okay your homework is to go and do this one thing that scares you and refrain from doing compulsions it's usually in a hierarchy so we Mm -hmm. start small and we work our way up or Newer research around inhibitory learning has shown that you can actually skip the lower ones and move to the high ones, but you have to be willing to do that and want to do that. And then you would need some distress tolerance skills to be able to do that, which we teach. You had mentioned the different presentations of OCD in the therapy room and mentioned some of these intrusive thoughts. How do you conceptualize then a hierarchy of exposure for things like sexual compulsions or for thoughts about hurting others? What does that look like when it's not something as concrete as, say, hand washing? Of course, such a good question. So easy, easy if you have an obsession that you can expose yourself to, right? Like germs. Uh, pesticides, uh, certain areas, certain numbers, that's that's an easy exposure. I mean, it's very difficult for the patient, but it's easy to come up with the exposure. When it comes to intrusive thoughts, particularly these, uh, you know, taboo-ish, you know, topics, sexual sexuality, pedophilia, harm, we actually do exactly that is because their fear is a thought, we expose them to their thought. So we would either write stories, we call them scripts or imaginals, where we write stories about their worst fear coming true, right? It's, it's horrible. It's hard, hard work, right? And it's it feels horrible for them in the moment. But then with practice, what they learn is you know, like anything, the more you expose yourself, the less your brain sets off the fire alarm about it. And so we would write these really, really long, detailed stories about their worst fear, worst fear. And I always sort of model to patients, I know your listeners can't see me right now, but I'm, I always sort of say to them, like, there's literally nothing these walls have not heard. Like, these what these this what we do here none of this will scare me like i've we've done this so many times so you would could either do an imaginal script you could do what we call flooding which is just where you say your fear over and over and over and over again mm. um you may also expose yourself to scenarios where you feel like you might snap because often patients with harm sexual relationship, religious obsessions, they're afraid that if they do and live their life and they go and live their life, that they will snap and lose control of themselves, turn into a horrible person. And so we may say, okay, a really common one is for mothers. This is where it breaks my heart as a mother is how many moms with postpartum OCD show up. They have this beautiful child that they love. They're holding them in their arm and then they get the thought, what if I hurt my baby? It's the most painful thing. Um, and so we, that they, they give the baby, they like take the baby from me. Like mm-hmm. I would prefer to never see, I'd prefer to never see my baby again than to take the risk of being that person. And again, they're not saying they want to, they're saying this is the most heinous thought they could ever think of. And so we would, uh, the exposure would be, I want you to hold your baby. I want you to hold your baby and have the thoughts on purpose. And then in practice, like we said with ACT, engaging with your baby and not engaging with the thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a lot of the work. When thinking through a treatment plan involving ERP with a client who's highly motivated and they are completing the work outside of session, whatever that might be, what's the expectation and how long it may take for them to feel some improvement and potentially some resolution in in their experience? 
the majority of people feel a deep sense of relief in session one because they finally have a name for what they're experiencing. So I think there are waves of of recovery for people and relief for people with OCD. I think getting a name and feeling less alone um, and being validated is step number one. Um, the psychoeducation portion is often very helpful in them understanding and, and getting, you know, an idea of like, this is what's been going on for me for the last decade. This helps to know that. Um, once you start exposures, you can expect things to get worse for a little bit. I'm going to be completely honest mm -hmm. because you're literally facing your worst fear. But with practice and repetition, usually four to eight weeks into that, you can start to feel a sense of mastery over these obsessions. Will the thought, this is the biggest question I always giggle when I, is clients come in and they get educated and they'll say, this is really great, Kimberly. I love it. Um, if you could just teach me how to not have these thoughts, I'll be set thank you very much. How can you teach me how to do that? And I have to very kindly and gently say, I'd love that to be the therapist, the therapy outcome, but that's not going to work because major, major concept to take away. The more you try to suppress a thought, the more you're going to have it. Right. Um, and so we actually don't work on reduction of obsessions. We work heavily on the reduction of compulsions. So if a client can emphasize that as their treatment goal, um, we usually see a, a, a radical change in, in their recovery. What you just said, I think, was really poignant. Can you say that again? The goal of treatment is not to reduce obsessions or even remove them. The goal is to change our reaction to the obsessions by reducing the compulsions, right? That is how we have change in our brain. That's how we have neuroplasticity in our brain to make those changes. And that is how we can take life back from, from OCD because instead of being from a place of where I don't want these thoughts, you're coming from a place of the thoughts can come if they want, I still choose how I respond to them. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for saying it again, because I think it's so powerful what you just said. And then it goes back to what you were saying about the extension or application of DBT and distress tolerance of mindfulness to OCD treatment in sitting with that obsession and strengthening the brain's ability, I, I guess, to sit with that um, urge with that uncomfortable affective state and then let the feeling pass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. So you had mentioned that when starting exposure for six to eight weeks, it can be really uncomfortable for the client. How do you clinically hold them, so to speak, to prevent somebody from blowing out of treatment, from dropping out? I mean, it it sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> if, if someone is paralyzingly afraid of not being able to act on this thought and this urge that they have, yes, it's going to be very uncomfortable for them. So do you see them more often? Do you offer, offer phone coaching? Like, what do you do to insulate them from this, you're going to get worse before you get better concept? It's a great, it's a great question. And I'll answer it honestly. Um, we, number one, right? is we don't do, some therapists do, but where I work and how I was trained is we don't do a ton of after and before therapy support, mainly because it becomes compulsive almost always, right? We actually emphasize the importance of just riding waves of discomfort. Now, yes, if client is very serious, severe, we can have them be in an intensive treatment program. We can see them more than once a week and so forth. But we try our best during the psychoeducation part, number one, to only set homework that is realistic. So, so, the, so hopefully we're not putting people in a situation where they're fully dysregulated because that wouldn't really benefit them anyway. Mm -hmm. We want to set homework and exposures that are realistic 
so that they can practice the response prevention. There's no point us doing a really, really hard exposure if we know for sure they're going to go and do a ton of compulsions, right? And so it's really about monitoring the homework to be realistic so that they don't get fully into that state um, and giving them as much support. But but that being said, we still don't do a lot of hand-holding because we really emphasize how easy the treatment can become compulsive. Um, and, and usually people really get that, right? They really understand that. And to be honest, by the time somebody comes to us, they're so sick of it and they're so stuck. Even exposure and response prevention, which is horrible, it doesn't feel fun, it's not good, it's really hard work, they're willing to do it because they've seen that their attempts to solve it haven't worked. Um, They have to do something different. And this is the most paradoxical option and it works. As you're talking about it, I can kind of hear the comparison to like physical therapy. Mm-hmm. where it's like at the point that you g- go and do physical therapy, it's because you've tried heating and ice packs, you've tried exercise, you've tried, you know, minimizing whatever motion you're doing that causes the pain. And then part of physical therapy is absolutely discomfort, just an yeah. inherent part of it. It is not fun. Um, yeah. But that it is the uh, hope that that physical therapy is going to reduce your displeasure that motivates you toward the change. Right. I I laugh because um, I I have a pretty engaged social media platform on um, on Instagram. And and my saying, everybody knows, and it's at the end of every podcast that I have a podcast, and at the end of every podcast, I say, it's a beautiful day to do hard things. Um, That is my saying. All my patients know I say it every single session, right? It's a beautiful day to do hard things. When I was um, updating my website, my web designer was like, uh, don't really love your, your little hash, your like little tagline here. It feels very icky. Like, why would you say that? And I said, because that is the population we serve. I don't, my, my, um, my tagline isn't, you know, you're deserving of love and all those things, even though I totally believe those is we do hard work. We face fears, we show up and we do the gritty in the trenches work with our patients where they have to do the really uncomfortable things. So that's sort of people know that they're they're already given that education as they go in. When conceptualizing treatment for OCD, how is it different when you're working with a child versus an adult? Mm-hmm. So there is newer, it's the same. It's ultimately the same. However, we couldn't really expect a young child to want to face their fears, right? That That's not realistic in many cases. There are some younger children who are, again, so tired of being stuck that they're willing to do it. And then we have behavioral charts and reward charts, and it gets them to do the hard things. And that can be effective. But recent research has extended ERP to a program called the SPACE program. And the SPACE program um, was created by Leibowitz, I believe. Um, I could be wrong and I may need to check the fact on that one. But it's basically where ERP is mostly facilitated now through the parent. What we know is a lot of kids who have obsessions end up requiring a lot of accommodation by the family members or the caregivers. Mm-hmm. And so what we instead of asking the child to do the exposure, we actually work more now with the parent through space. It's an acronym, again, a little alphabet soup for you, but it's a it's a program where the exposure is done through reducing accommodations of the parent or the caregiver or the family members, even teachers in some respects or, you know, soccer coaches. So it's working on them not doing the compulsion for them and then giving the, the child some distress tolerance skills and some uh, their ability to ride that wave out on their own. There are a lot of theories that are coming to mind as you're talking about this. So, for example, I'm thinking about harm reduction. So this idea that it's not an absolute, but we're trying to, if I'm looking through the lens of addiction treatment, for example, to reduce a harm uh, harm causing behavior. 
if we apply that to OCD, and let's say you're working with a child who has um, a lot of obsessive compulsive thoughts and actions around missing moments, we'll say. So like they are, they're ruminating about their birthday and then they want to have all, all of these things to remember their birthday, don't want to throw away trash. Again, like I can see now we can get into hoarding where there are like a lot of layers here. Um, so I can see a parent saying, well, why don't we take pictures of everything? And so it's basically a harm reduction to not keep the trash from the birthday, not keep the empty uh, box from the birthday cake, let's say, um, but let's take a picture of it. From an ERP perspective, I'm going to guess that's a bad thing because you've re you've reinforced the behavior with a photo. But on the harm reduction perspective, it's like, well, it's better than keeping the the yeah. dirty cake box. How do you view that as someone who specializes in OCD and does ERP? Well, in a perfect world, the parent wouldn't take the photo but we don't live in a perfect world. And so I think that we, you know, I, I just wrote a book about this is we also have to have a lot of compassion for the recovery process, right? We, we unfortunately, often people like want to self-criticize and self-judge and be very rigid as a form of motivation to get this done and it doesn't work right so we can actually motivate with compassion and self-coaching way better than we can with like strict rules and these are the way it has to be right i i to add to that really quickly i remember seeing a quote not too long ago that was something to the effect of i've never heard of um anybody hating themselves into change exactly um, and it's just exactly. stayed with me <laughs> Yeah. Well, we have research to show that self-criticism and self-judgment only increase procrastination. They decrease motivation. Yeah. They decrease somebody's sense of mastery over overcoming obstacles. So it doesn't work. Um, again, this is a big part of my, my personal goals is to really make sure exposure and response prevention has a nice wrap of compassion around it. But in terms of your question, yes, it's not ideal, but we take whatever wins we can and we celebrate them hard. Um, and so I think that if you can remember, this is a, this is a, um, a stepping stone, a ladder like treatment. We make a win. I, I you'll hear me often saying to my patients or in, in any setting, like a, even if you ha have an obsession, you do the exposure and you withhold from doing the compulsion for two minutes, that's a win. Tomorrow, you might do the exposure, withhold from the compulsion for four minutes, another win. And often exposures look that way, is that they're tiny incremental baby steps, which lead to middle-sized steps, which lead to large steps, which leads to recovery. So uh, if that helps you um, conceptualize how this looks, it's not a one and done, it's, it's baby steps. So going back to that example of this birthday party cake box, let's say, in the perfect ERP world, with a child, what would an intervention look like then when the child says, I don't want to forget this day. It was really special. I was looking forward to it. I need to keep the box. I need to keep these dirty napkins, whatever it is. And so then you are using space with a parent to help them avoid reinforcing the behavior, knowing having worked with children and, and adults who have um, OCD, knowing that, that for a child, there's this potential of just an enormous explosion of emotion of what do you mean? So what does an intervention for a parent look like in that moment? Mm, mm. Well, if the child's in therapy, sometimes a real, it's not helpful for everybody, but many children really benefit by having some version of an externalization of OCD. They give it a name, Mr. Dum Dum Face or Mr. T Mr. You know, Mr. Meanie or whatever it may be. And they externalize it so that number one, they don't take it as if there's something wrong with them. Right. So that can be really helpful. If you have that conceptualization with the kids, often treatment involves drawing your Mr. Meanie and 
you make sock puppets out of Mr. Meanie where you can learn to dialogue with it and stand up to it. And that's a huge piece for mastery of fear for children in general is, you know, them setting strong boundaries with fear and saying, hey, you don't get to tell me what to do. So if you've done that pre-work, you could easily say to the child, this is an opportunity for you to really tell Mr. Meanie you know, to back off, right? Now, sometimes if there's a kid who is either motivated to do that and can identify it um, as OCD, they will. Um, Or if there is some kind of behavioral activation reward system in charge of like, you know, if you can stand up to the Mr. Meanie 10 times, you get a Lego or whatever it may be, which is very classic CBT model, that works. And often with older kids, that does work. If it's a child who isn't able to hold space for any of that, um, it can sometimes be just sitting with them and saying, I'm totally here for you while they have a meltdown, right? Because again, too often parents run in to to rescue their, their child's emotions Instead of modeling to them, it's totally okay that you're upset. I can totally see that your brain is totally screaming at you right now, screaming at me right now. I'm going to be here. I'm going to stay with you. I'm not going to leave. Um, I, you know, you're welcome to share your thoughts. You're not, okay. it's not okay to punch. It's not okay to hurt me or throw objects, but I'm just going to be here with you. And if you need me, I'm right here. It's okay for them to have a meltdown. Um, in fact, sometimes that that gets old for them over time and they learn that because mom's not engaging, their behavior can yeah, become can extinct. Out. Right. Yeah. Thank you for providing a perspective about, you know, I guess, I guess the application of ERP with a child, for example. So you mentioned the possibility of reward. So if you're able to fight this urge this many times, then you could get a Lego. With an adult, how does that work um, when we when we don't have the authority figure, if you will, to reinforce it? How does that happen in, in an adult with OCD? Right. I have strong opinions about this <laughs> because I believe, and from what I've seen as a clinician, is one of the most compassionate things you can do for yourself is to celebrate hard, right? Now, and I, I'm for it, right? And the reason being is because if we're going to ask somebody to do really, really hard things, right? It's very hard to have the motivation to do that. And sometimes celebrating ends up helping motivation for the next thing. So often patients of mine, will uh, they will um, touch the Starbucks handle of the door And then they will not wash their hands and go and pick up their coffee, right? They won't, they, instead of using the door handle, going, washing their hands, coming and ordering their coffee, then going, washing their hands and then leaving and then washing their hands again. If let's say they're unable, they were able to not wash their hands, they may say something to the likes of, it's not worth celebrating, Kimberly. Everyone yeah. can do that. Yeah. And I and I I believe that given the heavy layer of stigma around OCD, we have to celebrate every single win. Now that doesn't mean you go to the spa every week, every time you do it. I mean, that would be it, nice. So, it would be nice, but not sustainable. So, but what I think it warrants us to say, amazing job, do a dance, you know, write yourself a note saying how proud you are, do something to celebrate the smallest wins, whether other people can do it or not. That has been proven to improve motivation and doing ERP requires a lot of motivation. You know, I'm I'm glad that you gave the example about hand washing right now. So as we record, this is the end of October 2021. And we've been living in just this hyper alert state. Everybody's nervous system has been on overdrive now for almost two years. And you had mentioned before we were interviewing that you just seen such an increase in OCD. And, you know, even your example about washing hands in the before times, like, 
it's it's like well no one does that or you know like that that that's right. unusual but now it's like no 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 celebrate that you washed your hands after you, <laughs> after, you, after you picked up your coffee um but but i can hear where even then you're looking at the impact of these stressors that are contributing to worsening of symptoms um for clinicians who are listening who are not trained in ERP who are not experts with OCD and stumble on it I've had that happen as a clinician. And like some of the examples you gave, sometimes they're not these more um, media discussed, obvious examples of OCD. And so it's like, well, I keep replaying this night that happened and I'm afraid that what actually happened was, and this fear of hurting somebody else, whatever. And then there it is in the room and you're however long into treatment and go, oh, what we're talking about is OCD what does the non-OCD professional do at that point? Do they refer out for, for OCD? Do they get as much training as possible, as rapidly as possible? Like what is the best case scenario when you suddenly realize you're looking at OCD? So so in a perfect world, again, they if you have an ERP specialist, I would strongly encourage referring out. Um, it doesn't even have to be long term. You know, the work we do is really trying to train people how to do it on their own so that they don't need a treatment forever. So yes, in a perfect world, you would refer out, but we definitely don't live in a perfect world. Um, and so there are some options. So you can get training in ERP. If you go to the International OCD Foundation, um, it's called iocdf.org. They have extensive trainings. Um, so that is an option. Um, I have uh, several, almost five years ago, I created a training with CEUs for this exact situation, clinicians who lived in a state that I can't treat them out of state because of licensing laws. And so it's for clinicians to learn. So you can get that at cbtschool.com. Um, it's CEU approved for many different types of licensure. Um, that's also comes, these trainings come at a cost. The, another option, if that's not possible, is there are workbooks. Um, there are the mindfulness workbook for OCD. I just wrote the self-compassion workbook for OCD that came out um, through New Harbinger Publications. A lot of patients I know sit with their therapist and they go chapter by chapter together. There's absolutely no shame as a clinician saying, I'm not trained in this, but I'm willing to sit with you and do this with you. Um, that's better than the person doing it on their own because you at least have some clinical skills to sort of pull apart what they're maybe not noticing. Um, so that's another option. So any of those are wonderful. You had mentioned referring out. You see ERP then as a time-limited, sh relatively short-term therapeutic approach. So if we had a client who was otherwise working on communication with their spouse, we'll say, and then we stumble upon this OCD elephant in the room to refer out for OCD treatment. And if we're talking about ERP, viewing that as a more isolated treatment and then bringing back or alongside working on the communication with spouse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if the person is already in treatment and they want to continue treatment, with their therapist while they do ERP, we usually need to set some pretty strong parameters with mm -hmm. the therapist, um, not to come in and take over their treatment, but just to make sure that the work we're doing isn't being undone by doing compulsions in the other therapy. Um, we do usually encourage there to be like, let's do the OCD work and then we'll return you back. Um, the exemption to that would be if there's PTSD involved and sometimes we do need to take care of these, the PTSD before we do this because you, we do need to have them be in a place of regulation to do this work. Um, same goes for, let's say, if um, the person is really struggling with emotional regulation, we may refer to DBT before mm -hmm. we do our work as well. Um, but usually through communication with the clinician, we can come up with a plan. Thank you. I appreciate that you address that point because that was one of the things I was thinking about where, um, you know, the possibility that OCD is 
activated from traumatic experiences. So it is the car accident that we had or almost had, and then that can spin out. So how do you simultaneously address that? So thank you for for bringing up that last consideration and leaving us with that. Um, Kim, there's obviously so much here that we could keep talking about. Um, you mentioned some great resources like your course and some other resources for our folks who are listening and want to learn more about you and about your work. What's the best way for them to do that? Sure. So a um, couple of options. So you can follow me on Instagram at Kimberly Quinlan. I have a free podcast, which is called Your Anxiety Toolkit. Um, and that's really tool-based, right? It's it's a lot of, you know, giving tools for people who have OCD and, and OCD-related disorders. Um, I have CBT School, which is all of the education. And then I have Kimberly Quinlan-LMFT.com, which is my private practice. Wonderful. Thank you again for joining us. And uh, for our listeners, again, just want to restate, take a look back in our past episodes and you can find another presentation um, that Kimberly had done about relationship OCD and what that means and how that can present in the room and in somebody's life. So thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.